Hey, Forge family. The Colossian passage that is next in the podcast series really doesn't do justice to Easter this week. So we're going to uh, jump over that Colossian passage, and I'm going to share with you um, an Easter message. It's 21 years old, <laughs> but when I listened to it again this week, um, there were tears in my eyes. I mean, I, there, were, there was content there that, again, it got me, and that's why I, I used it 20 years ago, and I commend it to you, and I commend it to you as a tool. Um, you may run across those who don't know what Easter is, and you don't know how you could possibly share with them uh, what Easter is all about. But perhaps either the content of this or the actual audio file might be a resource for you. But then I'm, I'm asking the Lord to just reach past the rush of Easter and touch your heart with this. So, Lord, uh, we prepare to receive from you in preparation to remember Easter. In Jesus' name, amen. 29 years ago, in the summer of 1969, a promoter uh, approached a farmer in upstate New York and got his permission to use Max Yasger's farm for a four-day rock festival. It was billed supposedly as an idyllic weekend in the country with the hottest rock bands. Word spread sort of through the underground and through the media, and the country roads around Woodstock turned into parking lots. Cars were abandoned. People just started walking. Thousands and thousands of, if you will, the Woodstock generation, my generation. The torrential rain, the sound system problems, the attitudes and addictions of the various performers, inadequate sanitation and shelter, and rampant drug use made for a wild weekend. Joni Mitchell, one of the performers, recording artists at that time, later wrote a song entitled Woodstock that was picked up and recorded by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. You hear it every now and then. Uh, the lost sense of the Woodstock generation echoes through her lyrics. This is what they say. Well then, can I walk beside you? I've come to lose the smog, and I feel like I'm a cog in something turning. Maybe it's the time of year. Yes, and maybe it's the time of man. And I don't know who I am, but life is for the, the learning. We are stardust. We are golden. And we got to get ourselves back to the garden. Her lines restate the haunting scrawl of the Impressionist Paul Gauguin across one of his paintings a hundred years before. Remember what that was? It said, whence what? Whither? What? You know, what am I doing here? Where did I come from? What am I doing here? Where am I going? A hundred years before, Gauguin had already tried to get himself back to the garden, back to Eden, back to innocence. What he discovered was that evil lurked in paradise, and the noble savage wasn't. Mankind has a haunting racial memory of Eden, of paradise of wholeness and integration, of intimacy and soul peace that's just elusive. It's a vapor and it's gone. It's unattainable. Each generation has to come to grips with the, uh, the brokenness of our forefathers and 
our own moral deficit. We are stardust. We are golden. And we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Into this sense of longing for restoration comes the passage that was read to us this morning. John chapter 20. We're going to be studying in that briefly this morning. It is an account of an encounter in a garden outside the walls of Jerusalem next to the crucifixion ground identified in John 19 verse 41. The gospel writers record that on the first day of the week a group of women hurry through the pre-dawn light with, with burial spices to complete the preparation of the body of Jesus. <clears throat> One of those women was named Mary of Magdala. Mary Magdalene. She was from that particular town in Galilee. Out of, out of her, Jesus had cast seven demonic spirits. In the aftermath of that, as a result of that cleansing, that liberation, Mary of Magdala became part of the women who ministered around the edges of the disciples. Now, she comes at dawn Sunday to finish what Friday sunset had interrupted. You see, no such labor could be done during Sabbath. But at the first possible moment, she comes to the tomb in the garden. John 20, verse 1, indicates that upon seeing that the stone that sealed the tomb was removed, Mary runs back to the city. She runs and tells two other disciples. And they, you know, you can smell the sound of, of burning sandals. They rush back to see what has taken place, and Mary hurries after them. There, in plain sight, inside the tomb, the grave clothes are laid out, undisturbed. Even in the hurried preparations of late Friday afternoon, the body of Jesus had been washed and then wrapped in linen strips, so it would have looked much like what we would identify as a mummy. To the wondering eyes of the disciples, the wrappings were still there in the shape of the body, but the body wasn't there. They leave believing that indeed Jesus wasn't there, but not yet believing that he was risen and he, that he was alive. Because verse 9 says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now Mary is left alone in the garden outside this empty tomb. The operant word there in that sentence is alone. Now some of you know firsthand the grind of that word is at the loss of a loved one. Or perhaps that word alone has pierced you in the midst of a crowd. Some of you felt the word alone ooze a bitter panic at the dissolution of a relationship. And as she stands alone, Mary mimics the actions of the disciples. She's there weeping. And up till now, she hasn't got it together enough to even look inside. And so she stoops and looks in. And what does she see? Look with me at, at verse 11. Mary standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked in. And she was greeted with this astonishing sight. And she beheld two angels in white, sitting one at the head, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And, she, and they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she looks into the tomb, she sees two figures dressed in white, one at the head, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been laid. The Greek word angelos is the one we get our word angel from. 
It just means messenger. And there are two such here. This question, these two beings question this fearful, tearful, astonished woman, asking her, why is she grieving? And her answer is that she's, she now fully believes that someone has taken away the body of Jesus, and she's still intent on recovering his remains. She's no longer alone, but somehow her senses, her eyes and ears, her senses do not connect. Now look at verse 14. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there, and, but did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, Tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which is, means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he said these things to her. Jesus is there, unrecognized through her tears. And Jesus asks her the same questions that the angels did. And then he amplifies them. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, believing him to be the gardener, doesn't explain again, but pleads with this man there, sort of in the fuzzy, through the tears. She asks him the location of the body. It doesn't occur to Mary to question him where the Roman guards went that were tasked to guard this tomb against mischief. She doesn't ask, why is the seal broken? Why is a two-ton stone moved out of the way? It doesn't occur to her to, to note the fact that the grave clothes are there undisturbed, now seen by three witnesses. It doesn't occur to her that she has had an angelic visitation. Mary is experiencing firsthand that phenomena where we say, don't confuse me with the facts, my mind is made up. Notice that this unman, un unknown man that is, is there, he's identified to us as Jesus. Mary doesn't identify him. And he asks her, whom are you seeking? Because Jesus knows what she is seeking is alive. The body she's, she's focusing on. Where did it go? Where did it go? He's walking around in it. He is alive. And so he says, who are you seeking? He knows the searing grief that is, that is just chewing on her. He knows whom she is seeking. It's then that Jesus speaks her name. Mary. Instantly, she recognizes him and cries out, teacher, and lunges to press her teary face into his chest. He's alive. We sang that this morning, but that's resonating through her. Joy, joyful discovery just dissolves her anguished grief. Amazed reality melts her frozen heart. Jesus is alive. She's no longer alone. Here in the garden, outside the tomb, is a place of recreation. Now, looking back down the spiral of history to the, to the Garden of Eden, 
we see that in that first garden, it was a place of creation at the center of a perfect world with two perfect people. In that first garden, all the first man and the first woman had to do was to maintain it and follow one simple instruction, one prohibition. They couldn't. They didn't. What resulted was a collapse of perfection into shame, guilt, and fear due to alienation from God, alienation from creation, and at a profoundly deep level, alienation from themselves. What had been a place of creation became a place of destruction. It was in the garden next to the tomb that recreation began. All the previous history of brokenness was suddenly changed. In Genesis 3, verse 8, God walked in the Garden of Eden. In John 20, verse 14, God the Son walks in the garden by the tomb. In the Garden of Eden, God came after sin was committed. In the garden by the tomb, Jesus came after sin had been counteracted. In Eden, Satan had done his worst. Man had rebelled. That rebellion had resulted in a vast separation between God and man. In the garden by the tomb, God had done his best. Jesus had made a vast separation between man and his sin possible. In the Garden of Eden, God walked in judgment. In the Garden by the tomb, Jesus walked in joy. In the Eden, God asked the man and the woman four questions, sort of a holy inquest, a judicial review. In the Garden by the tomb, Jesus asked two questions, each of them a holy invitation to discover the repairs that were in process, the repairs that had been made, and to prompt a faith response in Mary. In the Garden of Eden, God's presence addressed the ruin. In the Garden by the Tomb, Jesus announced the redemption of the race. The debris of disobedience and sin had begun in the Garden of Eden, and it had begun to spread to every man and woman and child that would infect their lives with that sense of alienation from God. Then in the garden by the tomb, the delivery and application of the perfect sacrifice had begun and would spread. It would begin to be announced to all mankind. It would begin to invade their lives with the healing message of reconciliation to God. In the garden of Eden, God came to cast mankind out. In the garden by the tomb, Jesus came to call mankind in. In the garden of Eden, God had a contingency plan. Genesis 3.15 is seen as the first promise of a rescue operation. God promises that from the seed of the woman will come a redeemer and hints at something miraculous. This redeemer will be wounded, which is the event of the cross. This Redeemer will wound the head of the serpent, Satan. He will ultimately take down the enemy. In the garden by the tomb, Jesus arrived with a completed plan. He, had, he was the fulfilled promise of the Redeemer. He was the promised seed. He was the one who had, was bruised at the cross. He was the one who had wounded Satan and will ultimately provide his destruction. In the Garden of Eden, God came to walk 
in the cool of the day, in the evening, at the close of the time, at the end of the time of initial perfection and innocence, in the garden of the tomb, Jesus walks in the pre-dawn light, at the dawning of the time of restored perfection and innocence. In the Garden of Eden, man was trying to hide from God. <laughs> As if that's possible. But he was trying. In the garden by the tomb, Mary is searching for Jesus. Adam was unrighteous. Mary was unrecognizing. He had violated the prohibition of creation. She was validating the provision made by the cross. He disobeyed. She discovered. Now, G.K. Chesterton wrote the following. On the third day, the friends of Christ came at daybreak to the place, found the, the grave empty, and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder, but they hardly even realized that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation, if you will, a new heaven and a new earth. And in a semblance of, a, of the gardener, God walked again in the garden. In the cool, not of the evening, but of the dawn. Now Mary thought that the resurrected Lord, that she couldn't quite see through her tears, she thought he was the gardener. She wasn't entirely mistaken. After all, from that first resurrection morning until now, the Lord has been growing a whole new humanity. He continues to cultivate us to produce the spiritual fruit that he intends. Now that's the view of the first two gardens. And as we look down, back down that spiral of history, um, but from that first Easter morning until today, there has unfolded an astonishing chronicle of life and growth. This month I ran across a report by a man named Stephen Saint. He is the son of a man named Nate Saint. Forty years ago, his father and four other missionaries were killed in the Ecuadorian jungle. How many of you recall that, that uh, indicator? You can hold your hands up. Now, children, look around you. These people are old. <laughs> and, and second, more astonishing, they remember 40 years ago. It's remarkable. But that, that event of five American missionaries who were killed in, on the Uruguay River in Ecuador sent shockwaves around the world. There were shock in the world and the media. The church grieved its new martyrs and hundreds, if not thousands, of brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, stepped forward to take the place of the five who fell on, on the beach. Jim Elliott, Roger Udarian, Peter Fleming, Ed McCulley and Nate Saint were involved in a radical outreach to a tribe of nomadic Stone Age headhunters who were greatly feared all over that whole region. They had flown a pontoon-equipped boat and landed it on the water of the Uruguay River and sort of skidded it up onto the beach, set up camp, and they radioed in that they had Auka Indian visitors. Within hours, all five were dead speared in a killing frenzy. Now the church grieved its new martyrs. 
and others stepped forward, as I said, to take their place. One of them was Rachel Saint, the sister of Nate Saint. She ultimately moved in and lived with the Alka people. Slowly, language was learned, trust developed, and the Bible was translated for the tribe. It was discovered that those who hated and feared that particular tribe called them Alka, but they called themselves the Horani people. Stephen Saint was writing this month in his report on the 40th anniversary of the death of his father. And he, he replays an encounter between a student group that had come from Western Washington University and University of Washington, 34 students who had made the trek to Ecuador, got on a bus, rode over the Continental Divide, went over the high pass and dropped down the eastern slope and, and took, the, took the bus to the end of the road. They went as far as you could go going east. Uh, oil companies and lumber companies had built these roads, and when you got to the end, you just parked the bus and you just walked into the jungle. And these 34 students were hosted by Saint, and uh, they were greeted by three Huarani men, who then were their guides along the eastern slopes of the Andes and then down into the virgin Amazon basin. Their trek included some 14 hours on a jungle trail, and then hours and hours of paddling these large dugout canoes downriver to get to this Huarani campsite. He writes, as the students unloaded their bags, Stephen Saint could see that the students had, in their time of travel, wearing a pack, walking through the jungle, they had come to truly respect and enjoy their Huarani guides. So much so, in fact, that as they settled in that evening under the, around a campfire, one of the students asked him a question, said, so, so where are the savage Huarani that we read about so that before we came on this trip? Saint explained that the very people that they had been traveling, hiking, eating, sleeping, and hunting with were in fact those savages. Seeing the students look of disbelief, he suggested that they ask some of the middle-aged or older people in around them. Remember those of us who had our hands up? Okay. Ask them where their fathers were. And so one of the students took up the challenge and nodded toward a Huarani woman. Saint translated. Her answer was Boto Maempo Dubai Wendapa, which translated means he is already dead a long time ago. Having been speared, he died. Her tone of voice conveyed that any other cause would have been unusual. Four more Huarani around the circle also gave similar answers, graphically showing on their own bodies where the victim had been impaled by the spears. Ask Ampadi, one student urged another. Several of the young women students had taken a great liking to Ampadi, who was an unusually warm and affectionate woman, a mother, excuse me, a wife and a mother of ten children. My father, too, she said, and the pain of the memory showed across her face. Then holding out her arm, she pointed at old Dabo, who was listening to the conversation a couple of feet away. She said, he killed my father and almost all the rest of my family, too. Living angry, he speared them all. My God, I was just sitting next to him. One of the students sort of flinched. And another student said, I I've heard enough about killing. But one more Horani woman, Dawa, who normally, she's tiny little, under five foot, pug-faced, round-bodied, long black hair, gnarly hands, she had normally left the conversation to others. She spoke up. 
pointing to her aging and gentle husband, Kimo, who was sitting next to Stephen Saint. She said, hating us, he speared my father, my brothers, my mother, and baby sister, whom my mother was nursing in her hammock. He took me and made me his wife. The tour group were shocked to their socks. Finally, one young woman blurted out, how could she live with the man who had murdered her whole family? The Americans started whispering amongst each other, and, and Saint suddenly realized what was going on from the students' perspective. Those students had gotten themselves into a situation where they couldn't travel without a guide. They were utterly dependent for their survival on a group of primitive people who had just admitted to being habitual serial killers. Now it occurred to Saint that the students didn't yet know his relationship to the Horani. And as Dawa was finishing her, her account of how Kimo had killed her family and taken her as his wife, Saint reached out and put his arm around Kimo and said, he killed my father too. At last, the question on everyone's mind got voiced. What changed these people? A saint interpreted the question, and around the circle, Dawa, Kimo, and others, the other Horani began to describe the life where everyone did as they willed. They explained that they threw babies away when they weren't convenient to care for. They explained that they buried people alive because they begged they begged people to bury them alive because they didn't want their spirits to be roaming around loose and disembodied if, if their body were to suddenly fall in the jungle and they weren't buried. One of the Horani, a gentle, happy woman, told the group how she had strangled her own daughter with her own hands to meet the demands of her speared and dying husband who had demanded that he wanted his children to be buried with him to keep him company. The one son she had refused to kill was the student's lead guide. Then they explained to these 34 students in the most highly advanced technolo technological society ever how they learned from the missionaries that the man-maker sent his only son to die for people full of hate, fear, and desire for revenge. Badly. Badly, we lived back then, Dawa said. Now walking God's trail, which he has marked for us on paper, we live well. All people still die. But if living you follow God's trail, then dying you will be led to heaven. But only one trail leads there. All other trails lead to where God will never be after death. Dawa's clear explanation had left her audience entranced, spellbound. But now, this little tiny woman had a question for them. And Saint translated back. Have you heard me well? Which one of you wants to follow God's trail, living well? There was silence. And then the seed of Dawa's message landed in the fertile soil of at least one American student who raised his lone hand into the night air. 
Dawa understood the American student's gesture, and she clapped her hands and said, Yes, I see you well now. Leaving, we will still see each other in God's place one day. And then she looked around at the others, and she said, Dying, I will never see you again if you don't follow God's trail. Think well in what I have spoken, so that dying, we will live happily together in heaven. words of a transformed life. All right, Forge family, I wish you a blessed Easter, and I am praying for encounters for you in all three gardens, in Eden, in the resurrection garden, and in the garden where the Lord has placed you in the marketplace, in the neighborhoods, in the families where you are, where he has already prepared the way. God bless you. Have a blessed Easter.